Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 13, but when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. Then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now over in Exodus chapter 20 and the first six verses. And while you're turning there, 1 John chapter 5 verse 21, the apostle John closes out that first letter of his by saying, little children, keep yourself from idols. Writing to one of the Lord's churches. Exodus chapter 20 beginning in verse 1, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. As we read in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel at Thessalonica. We'll back up a little bit. And he had been run out of Thessalonica by the unbelieving Jews. They caused him problems, so he went down to Berea. He gets to Berea, and there are people who received the word with all readiness of mind, the scripture says, but they also checked it out to make sure what Paul said was so. And I have no problem with that, folks. You check out what I say to make sure it is the word of God. But then the Jews heard that Paul was in Berea, and so they went down there and caused trouble, and stirred people up against Paul and against the word of God, which teaches us something like this, there's always going to be someone who doesn't want the Word of God preached. Amen. Or there may be a lot of someones who don't want the Word of God preached. The main one that doesn't want the Word of God preached and isn't lost men led to Christ is named Satan. And he's called the God of this world. And the scripture says he blinds the eyes of them that believe not, lest the gospel should shine unto them. So fearing for Paul's life, they send him to Athens. Maybe they thought Athens would be a safe place. Maybe they knew the reputation of Athens. What was the reputation of the Greeks and of those in Athens? That they spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to learn some new thing. You know, there are folks that just want to know what the latest fad is. There are folks who want to know what the latest church fad is, what the latest religious fad is. They just want to learn something new. They want to create some new doctrine to learn something new. By the way, there is no new doctrine. It's right here, okay? Anyway, while Paul was there, as we read, the scripture says his spirit was stirred. That word stirred has the idea of sharpened. It, it really means to be exasperated. Paul walked around Athens. He saw all these statues, all these idols to all these various gods. You know, the Greeks had a bunch of gods. If you've ever gotten into Greek mythology and, and all of that, Greeks had a lot of gods that they worshipped. And Paul saw that. And I know, I, I can sort of feel like a little bit what Paul felt, because you look in America today, we got a lot of gods today, folks, in America. And a lot of things that people worship that are not God, and that God didn't create, and people are worshiping them, and you just feel exasperated sometimes, and that's how Paul was when he saw it. And they even had an altar to the unknown God. 
Well, Paul took advantage of that. He said, I want to tell you about him. I know him, and I want to tell you who he is. And he boldly declared the God of heaven to them. In verse 21, he said to them of, of Acts 17, he said to them, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. That word superstitious means religious. Just hang on to that thought for a second. The whole idea of that word is more religious than other people. You know anybody like that that tries to be more religious than other people? So Paul said you're more religious than others. Again, Athens was full of false gods and false religion. And here's what's sad. With all of the gods that they worshipped, they had knew absolutely nothing about Jehovah God. Amen. They knew nothing about the God of the Bible. They were so religious. And yet they didn't know God. You know what that tells us? You can be as religious, quote unquote, as you want to be, and you can die lost and go to hell. Amen. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And so, we understand that religion is Satan's biggest business. He doesn't mind religion. As long as that religion keeps people from coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, our world and our nation especially is overrun with idols and with religion. Now, the idols of people may be some sports star. I think there are young people growing up who they just idolize some sports star. Or it may be some singer. Or it may be, Lord help us, some actor. And young people just idolize that person. We even have a television show called what? American what? Idol. And so our nation is overrun with idols. Here's what I believe. I believe there's some TV preachers, folks, that want to be idolized by the people that they've duped into following them instead of following the Lord. And throughout the world, there's innumerable, again, false religions that worship statues and man-made idols and things that resemble flying things and fish and all of those things, hoping that by worshiping those things, they'll have an easier life, have a better life, and maybe someday see what they call paradise. What's an idol? I've heard a lot of definitions of what an idol is. Webster says it's a representation or a symbol of a deity used as an object of worship. And then Webster said a false god. I'm glad he said that. One writer simply said it's the work of our hands. I think he left a lot out right there. The best definition I've ever heard for an idol is anything that we love more, fear more, cherish more, or serve more than God. Anything that comes between us and God is an idol. Your job can be an idol. Your house can be an idol. Your car can be an idol. Anything that we put between us and God. And by the way, Webster indicated that one who serves an idol does so with passionate devotion. We read in our text two prohibitions that God gave in the Ten Commandments about idols. Exodus 20 verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20 verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. But it seems like even with that prohibition... God's people have worshipped idols. If you just go to Genesis, and we're not going to take the time to turn there, but Genesis 35 2, Jacob said to his household, put away the strange gods that are among you. Joshua in Joshua 24 said, now put away <laughs> the same thing, put away the strange gods which are among you. Isaiah assured Israel that God would defend and deliver 
And then said this, For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for sin. And God told Ezekiel to tell Israel this, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Would God's people worship idols? Folks, they did in Israel. And we do today if we're not careful. I said anything that comes between us and God has become an idol God to us. What's the problem with idols? Because there's one God, folks. There's only one God. There are not multiplicities of gods. There is one God. He is the God of the Bible. He is Jehovah God. And he alone deserves our worship. Man does not deserve our worship. Things do not deserve our worship. And to worship anyone or anything other than the God of the Bible, the God of heaven, is to follow a lie. I love what Psalm 96 says, verses 8 and 9. One of my favorite psalms, especially these verses that I love to read, Give unto the Lord the glory that's due unto his name. How much glory is due God? All glory. What does all mean? It means all, okay? <laughs> Give God the glory he deserves. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts. And then look, look at verse nine. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness and fear before him all the earth. We are to worship God in the beauty of holiness. Sort of means to me that we need to clean up our lives before we come in here to worship God. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to hear a message and maybe that'll help me get right with God. Well, hopefully it will if you're not right with God and you come in that way. But the best way to come in and worship him is get right with God and then come worship God. Amen. 108th Psalm, the first verse, the psalmist said, My heart is fixed, O Lord. I will worship you with my praise. So the psalmist said, I'm going to get right with God and then I'm going to worship God. We have to battle against erecting idols today, sometimes in our lives, sometimes in our church life. And I want to share with you this morning six idols. It started out seven. I left one off. If we have time, I may mention it. But six idols that if we're not careful, would destroy our individual lives and damage the life of this church. And the very first one is lethargy. Lethargy. You say, what's lethargy? Well, a synonym for lethargy is laziness. Okay? Laziness, the definition of that is disliking activity or exertion, not energetic or vigorous. And a synonym for lazy is slothful. Have you ever watched a sloth, the animal, a sloth? You have to watch him for a while to see him move, don't you? Slothful. Well, what does what God's Word say about slothfulness? Ecclesiastes 10.18. Listen to this one. By much slothfulness the building decayeth, and through idleness of the hands the house droppeth through. Too lazy to fix the roof. Too lazy to repair the house. So what happens? The roof caves in. And all the weather comes in on top of you. Proverbs 26.15. I like this one. Listen to this one. The slothful hideth his hand in his bosom. It grieveth him to bring it again to his mouth. Have you ever known somebody that was so lazy they wouldn't even lift their hand to eat? That's what he's saying. Some folks are just that slothful. Some folks are just that lazy. They won't even lift their hand up to their mouth to eat something. What did Jesus say the master of the house would say to the servant who hid his talent in the earth? 
and didn't gain more talents for his master. He said this, his Lord answered and said unto him, thou wicked and slothful servant. Lazy. He said you could have at least put the talent into the bank. It's a sum of money. You could have put it into the bank and at least made some interest out of it. But you took it out and dug a hole in the ground and put it in there. Lethargy, laziness, slothfulness is an attitude that serves self and not the Lord and others. Have you ever noticed how some people, uh, folks, I'm going to meddle today. I may do more than meddling, okay? But have you ever noticed how some people can be so tired and so worn out that they just can't make it to church on Sunday morning? They have a miraculous recovery by Sunday afternoon. They go visiting, they go play golf, they go shopping, they do many other things, but they're just too tired. You know what they are? They're too lazy. You say, you're calling names. No, I'm just telling the truth to show up on Sunday morning. Vance Havner pointed out over 30 years ago that we are in the days of the professional ministry. What does that mean, professional ministry? Here's what we do. We hire a church staff to do the work for us, and then we come and sit and watch them do it. That's what's going on in churches today. Folks, that's why live streams are so popular. I know we had to have it during COVID. And we did. And we continued it because we have folks who are members of this church who sometimes can't come. I could name them. I want. I know who they are. They know who they are. And I'm certainly not talking to them when I say this. But it's so easy to sit at home in our pajamas, in our easy chair, sip our cup of coffee, doze a little bit, and say, I've been to church. Listen, the worship of God was never meant to be a spectator activity. It is a participatory activity. That means you participate, I participate, and we worship God together. By the way, you know who the audience is in a worship service? It's God. It is not you. It is not me. It is God, and he is the one who is watching our worship Not only is there lethargy when it comes to worship, folks, there's lethargy when it comes to work. What are you talking about? Well, you announce that there's going to be a work day at the church. See how many folks show up for the work day. You announce that there's going to be an eating meeting and see how many people show up. A lot more show up to fellowship and to eat than to show up to work. And I tell you what, you announce that we're going to have a day where we go out on visitation and see how few show up. We just don't want to work. We've hired, that's what you're there for, preacher. You're supposed to go out and fill this building. I like what Vance Havner, I love Vance Havner. I love reading and listening to him. He said one time, he said, it's not the preacher's job to fill the building. It's the preacher's job to fill the pulpit. And that's the pastor's job to preach the word of God. It is the job of God's people to fill the building with lost souls or with people who may be saved but need to get right with the Lord. And we, we just sometimes just, I'm sorry, get too lazy to do it. Lethargy's killing the Lord's churches, folks. And then number two, the follow your heart attitude. Oh, just follow your heart, right? Well, that's what we tell people they're supposed to do. We hear it all the time, the entertainment media, the movies, music, it's all full of it. Just follow your heart. In fact, today it's so bad that if you disagree with somebody's self-identity because they're following their heart, then you're just full of hatred, right? 
What does the word of God say about the heart? Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says what? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Be careful about following your heart. Only follow your heart as your heart follows the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only time we need to follow our hearts. Do you know what Jesus said about the heart in Matthew 15? He said this, beginning in verse 19, he said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. That's what's in this human heart. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Folks, all of that is in this flesh. It's in my flesh. It's in your flesh. You say, oh, no, it's not in mine. The Word of God says it is. And only by the grace of God you don't do those things. You realize that today, and I'm not referring to anything that I've ever done in my past, but because of what's in my flesh, I could be in prison on death row today. Amen. Thankfully, I was saved at a young age and have spent my life in church, not always serving the Lord, but spent my life in church. Following our hearts seems good to the flesh, but folks, it's not any good for the spirit life. In fact, the Word of God tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it tells us, Be ye followers or imitators of God as dear children, just like a child will imitate his or her parents. We're supposed to imitate God. We're supposed to live and to act like God. So lethargy and the follow-your-heart attitude, both can be idols. Here's another one, compromise. Compromise can be an idol. That's a great problem in a lot of churches today. Not just compromising in doctrine, but compromising with the world in our church life and in our individual lives. One definition of compromise is to adjust or settle by mutual concessions. Mutual concessions. You know what that means? In a compromise, both sides give up something. I'll ask you again, what do you want to give up? What doctrine do you want to give up? What teaching of the Word of God do you want to say, we're going to ignore that and we're just going to do our thing? I don't want to give up any of them. We're going to stand for the truth. Now, have you ever noticed that when religion in general and the churches of the world want God's churches, the Lord's churches to compromise, they don't talk about giving up anything. They talk about us giving up the truth. Us giving up what we preach and teach and believe and live. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23. Buy the truth and sell it not. Folks, this preacher is not for sale. Amen. This church is not for sale. Amen. I put a thing on Facebook the other day and some folks liked it. It said, preach the truth even if only one person listens. Okay. We're going to preach God's word. We're going to preach the truth. And if folks don't like it, uh, I can't even say I'm sorry because the truth is the truth is the truth. And <laughs> I can't apologize for God's word. Proverbs 22, 28, remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. It's in the word of God. 
And that's what we are to teach. Jude 3 exhorts us to do what? To earnestly contend for the faith which was once and for all times delivered unto the saints. And that phrase earnestly contends is the Greek word agonizomai. We get our word agonize from it. Agonize for the truth. Agonize for the faith. And I don't think there's a lot of churches or a lot of church members who are agonizing for the faith today, folks. You know what, Brother Truman's Sunday, we had a good Sunday school class, even without Brother Truman here. Brother Sean did a wonderful job teaching that class. I told him Brother Truman's going to be jealous because we had a lot of discussion this morning. When Brother Truman teaches, everybody's afraid to talk, I guess. I don't know what it is, but we don't have much discussion. Said, Brother Truman's going to be jealous because of the discussion that we had. He's teaching right now on the things that we believe and why we believe them. And that class ought to be full of members of this church wanting to know why and how to defend the things that we believe. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 speaks of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to do what? And to come to a knowledge of the truth. In fact, if you would just look, and I think I mentioned this Wednesday evening, if you'll just look in the New Testament, especially as Paul's writing to Timothy and as John is writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, notice the number of times the truth is mentioned. The truth, the truth. People say, I get tired of hearing about doctrine about the truth. But that's what God wants his churches to be taught. Amen. Doctrine is not some dull thing that, you know, oh, it's doctrine again. No, it's, it's, doctrine just simply means teaching. And it is the teaching of the Word of God in its entirety and in its purity. We are, as a church, to preach the Word and we are to teach the Word. And in fact, 2 John 10 says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, what doctrine is that? That is the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth. Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. You know what? I've for the years and years and years that I've been preaching, I've studied that. What does it mean? Don't bid in God's speed. And you know what it means? Don't even tell a false teacher, have a good day. Because it says when we do that, we are encouraging them in their false teaching. And we're not to have a part of that. You say, that's sort of rude, isn't it, preacher? I don't know if it's rude or not, but it's what the Word of God says. Compromise is killing the Lord's churches along with lethargy. Number four, relying upon programs for church growth. Relying upon programs for church growth. And you know the world and world's churches are great at creating programs. I could name some. Every year or so, I've mentioned it in Sunday school, I think. Maybe it was in this message. But every year or so, there's just some new fad in church. Much of what it's presented as programs for growth in the Lord's churches today, folks, is nothing in the world but some business approach or some positive thinking approach with a few little scriptures, most of the time taken out of context, added into it. Amen. You need this program and you ought to see the things that I get that come to this church and sometimes I get in emails and different ways uh, over the computer of here's how to grow your church. Here's how to double your attendance by next Sunday. Here's how to do this. Aren't you interested in doubling our attendance? I am. But folks, I want to do it the Bible way, Amen. not man's way. And most of these are man's programs. Psalm 127 verse 1. I love it. Except the Lord build the house, 
they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. It's about God. It's not about what I can do. It's not about what program we can find. Acts 2.47. Anybody know that verse? At the end of the day of Pentecost, when thousands were added to the church, you know what it says? The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And folks, that's who needs to add to this church. I've told you, and, and some who have joined this church can tell you, since I've been here as pastor, can tell you this, can verify this. You know what I tell people? If God wants you here, we want you here. If God wants you somewhere else, you need to be where the Lord wants you. And that's the only way you're going to be truly happy in serving the Lord. And so we let the Lord add to the church. I don't try to coerce. I don't try to twist arms. I don't try to butter people up to try to get them to join this church. You know, we've got enough members as far as just members. We need members who work. We need members who love the Lord. We need members who want to serve the Lord and, and bring other people into the church. But I've got a real, real good program that I found for church growth. I want to share it with you. It's one of the best. In fact, it is the best one that I have ever seen. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. That's it. Acts 1.8, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's the very best program for growing one of the Lord's churches. Bring people to know Christ as Savior Encourage them to have scriptural baptism and once they're baptized and become members of the church, teach them what the Word of God says and how to do what the Word of God says. Amen. I have to think about some things I'm about to say sometimes. Don't teach them to sit on a pew and just soak up the sermon. Amen. Teach them to serve the Lord. That's what Jesus was saying there. Now this next one I don't think we have a problem with. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Believers with big egos, they can become idols in the church. In fact, they are oftentimes idols unto themselves. Have you ever run into a believer that had a big ego? A church member, a child of God, that his ego was almost as, as well, bigger than the church. I mean, he thought the church, or she thought the church, revolved around them. And if I don't say it's okay, it's not okay. I've pastored people like that, folks. They exist. We live in what some call a celebrity culture. But a celebrity culture is not meant for children of God. It's not meant for believers. Paul dealt with something like this problem when he was in Corinth. Any of y'all remember that? 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, they had a problem in the church at Corinth. They had a lot of problems in that church. But the main problem they had, or the first one that Paul names, is what? There were people going around. Some were saying, and when they say I'm of Paul, they're saying this, Paul baptized me. And others were saying, well, Peter baptized me, and he was one of the original 12, you know. And then there were some that were saying, well, Apollos. Man, Apollos was so smart, such a gifted order. Apollos, I'm, I'm a disciple of Apollos. And then there was those real spiritual folks that said, well, Jesus, I'm, I'm of Christ. You know, I, I identify with Jesus Christ. You know what Paul asked them? 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for ye? 
for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why are you trying to bring my name into this? You were not baptized in the name of Paul. You're baptized in the name of Jesus. Paul didn't save you. Jesus saved you. Paul didn't die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. Get personalities out of it. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, And brethren, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why, Paul? Why is that your attitude? Look at verse 5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do not ever worship your pastor. I appreciate Pastor Appreciation Month. I appreciate the red hat ladies that did our Pastor Appreciation. I thank the church for the gifts that they gave me and, and Joni a few weeks ago. But folks, don't worship your pastor. We're not worthy. Christ is worthy. God is worthy of worship. And that's why Paul said, and don't say, well, you know, I'll be a member of that church as long as Brother Jim's there when he's gone. No, if God put you here, stay here. Amen. The Lord could take me home tomorrow. This afternoon, okay? I thought I was going Tuesday. I had some chest pains and some back pains, and I'm thinking, oh, Lord, is this it? Lord, at least let Joni get home before I go, you know. But it could happen. Worship God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Paul asked this question, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. And then he says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Amen. There were faithful members of this church before I became the pastor here. And there were faithful preachers here pastoring this church and preaching this church and leading this church before I ever came here. And what you see here today or, or any other time, now if the attendance goes down, that may be the work of Brother Jim, you know. <laughs> one time at a church, I sang a solo one Sunday morning. Our attendance went down and never came back up. So, you know, that's why I don't sing, except in the choir. But folks, if this church grows, when this church grows, I'm not going to say if, when this church grows, you give God the glory. Nothing I've done. It's what God has done. That's what Paul's saying. Instead of being self-promoting, we're to have the mind of Christ. According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, we know that Jesus made himself of no reputation, but took on him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's the mind we're to have. So no believers with big egos. I said I don't think we have a problem with that. Number 6. I may throw in number seven in just a moment. But number six, this may take a while, emotionalism. That can become an idol. Emotionalism, and much of so-called worship today is nothing but emotionalism. Amen. People come to church and they get convicted and they shed a tear and they think, well, I, I worship. And that may just be conviction of your sin. Maybe conviction of your lost condition. Make be conviction of the fact that you as a child of God are not living for God. Emotionalism is defined as undue indulgence. That makes it personal. In or display of emotion, a tendency to regard things emotionally. Worship is not about how the service makes you feel. Amen. Okay? 
It's not about how it tickles your fancy. It's not about how it touches your emotions. The first thing to remember is that worship is for and is about God. I am nothing but a messenger. Okay? This worship service is about God. And there are people that will go away from a worship service and start talking about how it made me feel. Oh, that just made me tingle all over Oh, that just made me feel so good. You know what we ought to think about, what we ought to talk about when we go away from a worship service? Was God pleased with our worship today? That's what we ought to be worried about, is God pleased with my worship? True worship will bring about a change in our lives. Emotional worship will not. I'll give you an example. After the three Hebrews had survived the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 3, it says, he spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Man, that sounds good. Nebuchadnezzar got it, didn't he? No, he didn't. Because listen to what he says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? What had Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar? God raises kings up and God brings them down. Amen. King, you're in the position you're in because God put you there. And he had an emotional experience when he saw the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, I'll give you the Jewish names. When he saw their lives spared, oh, wonderful, he's in awe. I mean, the men that threw him into the fiery furnace died. And they came out of the furnace, the ropes were burned off, they didn't even smell like smoke, and when he had looked in, he saw a fourth person, and there he said, he's like unto the Son of God. Literally, he was unlike to a son of a God. He wasn't recognizing God as the only God. He just got pent up in emotions and excitement. And now in chapter 4, he's completely forgotten God and what God has done and his position and his power. Now listen, that's not to say that emotions have no place in worship. God created us with our emotions. I've said before, a sermon ought to make you mad, sad, and glad. One sermon. Makes you mad right at first at the preacher preaching on your particular sin. But then the Holy Spirit conviction, you get sad about it. And then you get right with God and you get glad about it. Those are all emotions, okay? But our worship is not to be controlled by our emotions. What did Jesus tell the Samaritan woman? God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Our spirits led by the Holy Spirit according to the word of God. What happened to Peter? What did he do? And I love this because all Jesus had to do was turn and look at him. But after Peter had denied the Lord three times, what did he do? What does the scripture say he did in Luke? He went out and wept bitterly. Is that emotion? Yes. He was convicted of his failure of his Lord. And he went out and he wept bitterly. When Moses stood before the burning bush and God spoke, and he responded. You remember what it says there in Exodus? Moses hid his face for his fear. He was afraid to look on God. 
Folks, we ought to come in here with a sense of awe and a sense of reverence before a holy God because he's here this morning. Amen. The Holy Spirit's here. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of you. So the triune God is here today. So I didn't know the Holy Spirit was here. If nobody else, I brought him in with me, but some of you did too. You know? He's here. And God said, we're going to come in with a sense of reverence of coming before Almighty God. And then Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 6, when he saw the glory of God, what did he say? He said, I'm going to die. I am going to die. I have seen God. I've seen the glory of God. I've seen the holiness of God and I am not going to live. Oh, how we ought to, we, we come so casually before God. I know the scripture says that in Jesus, through Jesus, we can have this closeness to God and that's wonderful that we can say, Abba, Father, or Daddy, Daddy. We can do that. But you know, and, and this is, I'm gonna get a personal pet peeve right here. My dad's name was Lawrence Harris. But I never went up to him and said, hey, Lawrence, can I do this? Can I do that? What was it? It was dad. Okay? There was a respect. There was a reverence there. Sometimes I, and maybe I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, you forgive me. But I hear people pray, and they say, God, now do this for And I'm thinking, no, this is, this is the God of him. We ought to, uh, he's our heavenly father. We ought to approach him. With that understanding, I never called my daddy by his first name. I called him by his nickname sometimes, but that was a whole different story. But he's God. And we ought to reverence God. Isaiah said, I'm going to die. I've come into the presence of God. True worship is more than just an emotional experience, but it does involve our emotions. Yeah, I don't see how you can sit and listen to the Word of God, be convicted of your sin, and go away dry-eyed and without some sense of fear before God. I talk to God on a daily basis. hope you do too. But there's a sense of, Lord, you're in control of all of this, and, and I need your mercy every day. True worship requires an adjustment of our hearts and lives to God's will. Now, in case you wondered what number seven was, it's intellectualism, okay? God gave us a brain. He expects us to use it. We're supposed to improve it with education. I'm not against education. If there were young people in here today, I would tell them, there are some, I would tell them, look, get the best education you can get. But intellect alone cannot bring us to the truth. Just because you've got a lot of education doesn't mean you're going to know the truth. Paul said the cross was a stumbling block, an offense to the Jews. He said it was foolishness to the educated Greeks. But what is it to us? The power of God, folks. Why would I refer to these seven characteristics or activities as idols? Because, again, anything that comes between us and God, anything that we worship more, serve more, that has more influence on us than God, folks, has become our idol God. And you can call them idols or you can call them something else, but if we allow them to, they can damage our fellowship with the Father and they can damage this church. Amen. And they can be used by Satan. There is one God. He is the God of the Bible. Again, we're to worship Him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. And a part of that worship comes through service. 
learning of Him, living for Him, so that we may better witness of Him to our fellow men, to our fellow people, and His great love for mankind. The answer to temptation to follow these idols is simply found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, which says this, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve Him and shalt swear by His name. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 4, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God and serve Him only. We live in a world that's full of ideas about God and ideas about serving God. But the Bible tells us how to approach God. If you're here this morning, by the way, and have not addressed this yet, maybe just in passing, but if you're here this morning and you have never repented toward God and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you need to. It says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How did that happen? You sinned in Adam when you were born. You are born a sinner separated from God. And you need to be saved from that. And the only way to be saved from it is not through, certainly not through lethargy, certainly not through following your heart, certainly not through compromising with some religion or any of these other things I mentioned, but it is by Repentance, that's turning, turning to God, confessing, agreeing with God. That's what confess means, that I'm a lost sinner and I need to be saved. Repentance toward God and what? Faith, trust, dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. By just saying, Lord, I'm a lost sinner, I need to be saved. I ask you to save me and put your faith totally in what Jesus did at Calvary. And you know what will happen? God will save you. You can be saved today. Being a church member won't save you. Being baptized won't save you. Walking an aisle and kneeling at the altar won't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And then you need to learn of him. And you need to live for him on a daily basis.